anybody get a match? You wanted to see me? So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Oh, you're a mess, aren't you? Now, this business of Dad's, think you can handle it for him? That shouldn't be too tough. Really? I would have thought a case like that took a little effort. Not too much. What will your first step be? You must have read another one on how to be a comedian. Hear what I said about the drink? I'm quite serious, Mr. Marlowe. My father's trying to help yourself. He liked Sean, Sean Regan. I suppose you'll know who he is. Uh-huh. You don't have to play poker with me, Mr. Marlowe. Ed wants to find him, doesn't he? Do you? Of course I do. Wasn't right for him to go off like that. Broke Dad's heart, although he won't say much about it. Or did he? Why don't you ask him? You know, I don't see what there is to be cagey about, Mr. Marlowe. And I don't like your manners. Well, I'm not crazy about you and me. People don't talk to me like that. About a month back. Your limo is second in line there. Oh, well, I can take it from here. You sure? Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. You're welcome. Good night. Good night. Get the fuck away from me! What are you doing? Oh. Prior incarnation, I would get my load on. There's a man in my room. I woke up at the door three minutes ago, and there was a man hiding in this compartment. I sensed it. What's more, I know who he was, because I absentmindedly nearly walked through his open door earlier this evening. Madam, said this Mr. Ratchet, if you'd done this 20 years ago, I'd have said, come in. 20 years ago? Ha! But I'd only have been 15. If there should be a reoccurrence, do not hesitate to ring, madam. Sure. Okay, let's on. We flew to New York. 
Our arms locked the whole way. Except for breakfast. Marilla needed two hands for that. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now expected we will land in New York on scheduled time, which will be 9-10. One hour, hey. Where do you live, anyway? 74th Street. I will stop at my place first. It's closer. Then we'll hop a cab and pick up your stuff. A cab? What about my furniture? Oh, give it away. Can't live in two places. It was a wonderful trip. Start breathing again. I told them to go ahead and look. I knew they would anyway. I had to take the chance. What were you doing there, San Quentin? Painting in the hills. I didn't know I'd be on that road. Radio said the truck was headed south. I figured you'd head for the county road. And I passed the empty car with the door open, so I turned around and came back. There I was. I'm supposed to believe that. Back in your life. Oh, I don't believe it. But I got you past the. Realize that you've settled. The problem was that I, uh, I always felt I had more time. I was, uh, I mean, now I, inside, I, I feel young, like a kid, that it's just a beginning. And, uh, I have everything ahead of me. But I don't. Bring everything down. The uh, soldier stuff, too. Oh, a uh, soldier, give her out of a hand. Coming with us? Storm's passing. One shutter, two, some trash on the beach. A few hours of a little to remind you of what happened tonight. Will we ever see you again, Frank? Yeah, the storm. Sebastian. I hope so. Oh, my heaven. I can't believe it. A man at last. Welcome. To the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Happy Mexican Independence Day. This is an inclusive show. That, of course, those clips, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Because in 2024, it would have been Lauren Bacall's 100th birthday. Today would have been her 98th birthday. And eight years ago, she died a month shy of her 90th birthday. She was born... I almost said born, like I'm um, from the South, and I'm not. My grandfather was, though. Um, she was born Betty Joan Persky on September 16th, 1924, in New York. Raised by a single mother, her uncles, many family members, and um, became a model, was very good in school, was discovered by accident by director Howard Hawks's wife in a magazine. He renamed her Lauren Bacall. And I guess probably had some ideas which didn't go anywhere because who swooped Lauren Bacall off her feet? 
1944, not only in the film, but in real life, Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart was a lot older than her, but sparks flew. You can see it on screen. Very rarely when you watch a film and then you know that there was chemistry off screen, do you actually see a film where you actually see these people fall in love on screen? It is a legendary moment, and that was highlighted in To Have and To Have Not. Written by <laughs> Ernest Hemingway. And thus, Bogart and Bacall, or Bogie and Bacall, was born. That partnership. There are many partnerships in film, many duos. But Tracy and Hepburn, um, Gable and, and Loy, and uh, oh, also Gable and um, uh, Harlow. Or Cary Grant and uh, Ingrid Bergman. Oh, my goodness. But Lauren Bacall, you know, the fact that um, she is forever synonymous with Humphrey Bogart. And that suited her just fine. And in the late 90s, finally, she received an Oscar nomination, her first and only. For The Mirror Has Two Faces. She won the Golden Globe, the BAFTA, and SAG Award. And didn't win the Oscar. You know who won the Oscar? Juliette Binoche for The English Patient, which was sweeping that year. I always hate sweeps. I do. Um, and uh, But in 2009, that final clip you heard, she was received an honorary Oscar where she says, A man at last. Bacall was style. She was attitude. She was class. She was everything. The American Film Institute in 1999 named her the 20th greatest female star of the classic Hollywood cinema era. She was married to Humphrey Bogart from 1945 to 1957. And then Josephine Robards from 1961 to 1969. She has two children with Bogart, Stephen uh, Bogart and Leslie Bogart. And then Sam Robards. With Jason Robards. What a what an icon. She was discovered in Harper's Bazaar and magazine and Vogue. It was a fashion model. Yes, the famous picture of her dangling her feet over the piano as Vice President Harry Truman played to the chagrin of his wife. Um she lived at the Dakota in New York City. Very legendary New York building. John Lennon lived there. In fact, unfortunately, John Lennon was shot and killed there. Uh, Rosemary's Baby was filmed there. <laughs> yes. Mm. But for me, it's about Key Largo. Key Largo, just that whole... Um, That that was the final film her and Bogart did. And um Yeah. She was she was an icon. She was an icon and um I was reading somewhere around here. 
because she is she was related. Let's see. To a very famous person internationally. Hmm. Here we go. Okay. Through her father, Bacall was a relative of Shimon Perez, Perez, um, the eighth prime minister and ninth president of Israel. He did not know. He did not know about the relation until Bacall told him. Yep. Though, aside from that, I also played the clip where she was on Sopranos, and she got robbed by Christopher, that little bastard. <laughs> Jeez, that show. I never really got into the show. Maybe eventually I will. But when it comes to Lauren Bacall, so much thing can be said about this I I mean everything about her I mean the mirror has two faces I loved her in uh, Murder on the Orient Express so much so that when Michelle Pfeiffer is doing her part it's like yeah it's missing Bacall it is missing Bacall Bacall really you, you didn't even have to call her Lauren or her friends all called her Betty only her friends Called her Betty. And. Mm. Here we go. Let's go to Letterman. One of the legendary stars of Broadway and motion pictures. Her latest film is a remake of Dinner at Eight, which is currently playing on the Turner Network TNT. Do you get that network, Paul? I don't. I don't. Well, that's where it is. TNT. Ladies and gentlemen, here she is. Please welcome Lauren Bacall. For being here, welcome to the program. You look terrific. You're all all dressed up. I, I appreciate got dressed that. up for you. That's I've been very nice this all day. Uh, how how is the holiday season going for you? Have you been busy shopping? You've been busy running around. I know you had cable trouble today. I have. <laughs> you know that. Yes. Yeah. No, I have been busy traveling. Traveling. Actually. I just got back from England last mm -hmm. week. Doing what there? Um, I actually was on a television show with Dame Edna Everett. Mm -hmm. Barry Humphreys. Do right. you know him? The Australian? Yeah. 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 Brilliant. He, this is a, a comedian who dresses up like this yes, woman. Yes, yes, yeah. but it's not a drag act. I mean, he is a real... He's created this character, and you are convinced that he is this character. Yeah. And, and was that... And even he's convinced he's this character. Well, see, there you go. Yeah, that's, that's the fun of dressing up, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> is it? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just sort of speculating. Uh, so now you're back, and and, uh, and been, I'm back, yeah. and I'm shot. You know, I've done a lot of shopping, and I'm sick of it. Mm -hmm. And now I have to rap, and I'm sick of that. How many people would a person of your stature be shopping for for Christmas? As few as possible. Mm, good idea. <laughs> My children. Uh huh. And we're talking uh, about what? Three there. Three there. Yeah. Yes, grandchildren. Right. And um, although I realize that I only look 22, I. Yes. <laughs> Nevertheless. But now let me, let's get into the area of gifts for business associates. 
I don't do that. You don't do that? No. <laughs> Neither does NBC. I thought I was going to get a gift from you. Well, I have a little gift for you, if you oh, would you like. <laughs> use, use a lot of cotton balls. Uh, Careful. So, uh, so you've done all your shopping, haven't done any of the wrapping yet? No. No problem, yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? Have you done yours? No, I haven't done it. Who do you shop for? Well, you know, the problem is, uh, like, two days after Christmas, I get a lot of calls from people saying, hey, where's my gift? But isn't, don't you shop for one special person? You know mm, what I mean? A few years ago, there was one special person. <laughs> Not now? I asked her if she'd just kind of forward the gift. <laughs> so now, no? Well, yeah, of course, there are special people that you shop yeah. for. Yeah. And then I would guess the same is true for you. Would you? Yeah, probably so. Um, now, do you, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the dinner at 8? Yes, please? dinner at 8, yeah. TNT. Uh, what exactly it, it is the TNT? It was shown last night. Yeah. TNT is Ted, it's the Turner Network Television. Turner Network Television, another yes. arm of Turner Broadcasting. Yet another yeah. arm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yes, and I had a great time. I had a wonderful time. Please, without turned off? Uh, yes, I think so. Does, does it it was just on last night. My only beef is that there are too many commercials. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to see it straight through. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah. But I like to be able to see a dramatic show from start to finish. And uh, I know they have to have, I mean, it's, I know, realize it's a necessary evil, but yeah. nevertheless. You hardly ever hear the complaint that there were not enough commercials in a show. No. <laughs> you know, people sitting at no. home, geez, no. went by too I quickly. Now, does it, does it trouble you at all that he uh, is uh, largely responsible for the, the trend of colori colorizing uh, old films, old black and white? It does pictures? trouble me. I'm, uh, I, I, see, I have very mixed emotions about Ted Turner because I love the experience of Dinner at Eight. Mm -hmm. uh, TNT is all the people that work there are terrific, and I hope to do more work with them. Uh, and I'm very against colorization, and I have been from the beginning, so... What do I do yeah. about that? Did, did you meet when Ted Turner? To the three meals a day, I gotta go to work. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Did, were you able to meet Ted and discuss? No, this I've with never him? met him. Yeah. Never met him. Uh, let's do Is a. He here? No, he's not here. I don't think. Uh, we'll do a, a commercial and then we'll be right back here with uh, Lauren Bacall. <laughs> So we're going to pull away. That was in 1989 when Dave was at NBC. Here are some tantalizing facts about Lauren Bacall. She tried it on for size. Like many things in her life, Lauren Bacall got her stage name via misadventure. The woman who became Lauren Bacall was born Betty Joan Persky to Jewish parents. We already know when. Her mother's maiden name was actually Weinstein. Weinstein. But she later took the root of that name, Wineglass, and translated it to Romanian, Bacol. The young actress's mother then changed that to Bacol, only for her daughter to eventually add an extra L at the end, giving birth to a legendary Hollywood name. He left them. Lauren Bacol grew up in New Jersey with her parents, but when she was five years old, something turned her world upside down. In 1932, her parents divorced and her father completely disappeared from her life. While he brought the young actress and her mother closer together, it was clear from the interviews and those who knew Bacall that her feelings toward her absentee father were less than loving, 
if not downright bitter. It wouldn't be the only heartbreak that she'd face. She knew as soon as she saw him. As soon as Bacall hit high school, her ambitions were clear. She wanted to be famous. And Bacall's love for acting wasn't only born out of a desire for attention. She was a bona fide fan of both stage and screen, and one of her favorite stars was Betty Davis. When she was 13, she went to see Betty Davis, star and marked woman. The film introduced her to the new, her new favorite idol, Humphrey Bogart. Watching him, Bacall made an eerily per, uh, president prediction about her future. She told a friend, I'm crazy about the man. Just crazy about him. I love Davis, but I would play opposite him. <laughs> and look what happened. There was a mix-up. As a struggling actress, Lorne Bacall took on modeling jobs and eventually briefly worked as a theater usher. Then, when she was 18, she became a model for Harper's Bazaar. Soon after, socialite Slim Keith spotted Bacall on the cover and found her intriguing. She showed the magazine to her husband, film director Howard Hawks. Keith suggested that Bacall be his next star. Hawks asked his secretary to reach out to Bacall, but instead Bacall found herself the victim of a bizarre twist of fate. Hawks' secretary misunderstood. Instead of simply calling the girl, she sent Bacall a plane ticket to Hollywood to audition for an upcoming picture she was he was working on. It was an unlikely and life-changing stroke of luck. She was vulnerable but not va- naive. While this fluke worked out in Bacall's favor, it wasn't all smooth sailing for the young actress. She had to look. She had the look, but she also had the little acting experience. With just a few plays under her belt, Bacall explained her apprehens- apprehension to Hawks, but he saw it as an advantage. Bacall didn't have any of the bad habits that other actresses he'd worked with had, and he was going to shape her as an actress from the ground up, and he enlisted one of his favorite actors to help. She couldn't control herself. When Bacall was, went for her first screen test for Hawks' film, To Have and To Have Not, she was so nervous that she couldn't help from trembling. In order to steady herself, she lowered her chin, tilted her eyes up to the camera. Not only did it help control her nerves, but the sultry pose became her signature look. And it certainly charmed on Hawks and the bigwigs at Warner Brothers. He made it all about her. Hawks decided that not only would he cast Bacall as Marie in To Have and Have Not, that he would focus more on her character, eliminating, eliminating a love triangle plot and making her the sole romantic interest of the actor he'd chosen to play the main character. None other than Bacall's childhood crush, Humphrey Bogart. He also spent hours a day on set with her, stepping away from behind the camera and coaching her whenever he could. If it seems like Hawks was a little too focused on his young protege, well, he was. He wanted her. When Hawks, Howard Hawks cast Lauren Bacall at the romantic lead to Have and to Have Not, it was supposed to be her big break in Hollywood. Instead, she wound up on the wrong end of a disturbing love triangle. Despite the fact that his own wife had discovered Bacall, Hawks was a notorious womanizer. And he had sights set on the young actress. Considering he pulled this type of nonsense off before, it was no surprise. But Hawks didn't know that he was in for what he was in for with Bacall. She wanted someone else. 
Lauren McCall was emphatically not interested in her boss. But that doesn't mean she was above fa falling for another colleague. The chemistry between Bacall and her co-star, Humphrey Bogart, was undeniable, and it translated into red-hot passion off-screen. There was just one problem. His notoriously jealous wife, actress Mayo Mahout. So, for those keeping track, that's one jealous director, one jealous wife, and one vulnerable young starlet. Definitely a potential recipe for disaster. He was a huge creep. To make things even more disturbing, director Howard Hawks had based much of Bacall's character on his wife at the time, including her nickname Slim. Her enigmatic demeanor and her low, smoky voice, which he had purposely taught Bacall to mimic, despite this misguided tribute, Hawks wound up with something of a consolation prize. When he couldn't catch Bacall's eye, he had an affair with another actress, Dolores Moran. Sorry, Dolores. They fell in love. Lauren Bacall was immediately taken with Bogart, and apparently the feeling was mutual. Because one day after filming, he reached over and kissed her before asking for her phone number. Bacall, then 19, wrote in a matchbook for Bogart, who was 44 years old at the time. At first, they kept their affair secret, but it wasn't easy after all. They were under the scrutiny of a domineering director and jealous wife. It became a race to see who would find out first. He was furious at her. Well, spoiler alert, it was Howard Hawks and his reaction was absolutely chilling. Hawks had signed Bacall to a contract at the beginning of the filming, but now he threatened to send her off to a low-end studio and ruin her career before it even started. Obviously, she turned to Bogart for advice, who grew equally angry at Hawks for his ridiculous behavior. The two got into a blowout fight and the consequences were dire. They wore out they won out over him. Things were so bad between Hawks and Humphrey Bogart that production of To Have and To Have Not stopped for two whole weeks. Eventually, studio head Jack Warner had to intervene in the situation, and Bogart won out in more ways than one. Not only did he convince Warner Brothers to get Hawks off Bacall's back, but he also got a hefty raise if he promised not to stall production anymore. To the victor go the spoils. She learned quickly. While How uh, Hawks peeved at Bacall, Bogart took over teaching duties and taught his young lover how to steal a scene, literally. When Tavin Have Not came out, it wasn't an instant hit, but one thing was undeniable. Critics loved Bacall and said she did, in fact, steal the entire show. And that wasn't all that she took. She had friends in high places, imagining upstaging a future U.S. president. That's exactly what happened when Lauren Bacall appeared on the National Press Club in February of 1945. Then-Vice President Harry S. Truman was there for the afternoon and sat down to play the piano. At that moment, Bacall's press agent told her to sit on the piano. She hopped up, and an iconic photo was born. Speaking of stealing, though, he couldn't st uh, stay away. By the time To Have and Have Not came out, there was no denying that something was happening between Bacall and Bogart. At first, they stayed silent, but a scant eight days after the film came out, Bogart announced that he had moved out of the home he had shared with his wife. He couldn't have been more surprised from who had been suspected their infidelity and stalked the set To Have and To Have Not, hoping to prevent the inevitable. But still, their story didn't end there. They punished her. 
As you'll remember, studio had Jack Warner had to step in between Bacall and stir, stirred up trouble between Bogart and Hawks on the set of To Have and Have Not, which leads to the question, was that he, was that what he did next retaliation for stepping out of line? Warner cast Bacall in the film Confidential Agent, which turned out to be an utter flop. Considering her level name of recognition, it may not seem like a blip on the radar, but apparently so bad that even Bacall thinks it permanently derailed her career. Luckily, the same studio couldn't resist her on-screen chemistry with Bogart. He went back. After the success of To Have and To Have Not, studios insisted on pairing Bogart and Bacall for another movie, and in the fall of 1944, they began to make The Big Sleep. It took for a second look, second like Bogart would seamlessly move from his marriage with Methal to, onto a relationship with Bacall. But what he did next shattered Bacall's heart in a million pieces. Eleven days after announcing his separation, he made another announcement that he would stay with his wife. But we know what happened. He crushed her. The news of the reconciliation absolutely devastated Bacall. She later said she cried so much she had to ice her eyes to s on the set and able to look remotely normal for the cameras. But still, Bogart, Bogart couldn't stay away. He once called Bacall at 3 a.m. only for Metal to pick up the same phone and yell a slur at the young actress. It gets worse before it got better. They couldn't be together. Bogart's marriage to Methal was his third, and it was deemed to make the last, but finally he reached his breaking point. Production on The Big Sleep paused for Christmas, leaving Bogart at home with his wife. Drinking had almost exuberated their problems, and on the holidays, no exception. Finally, he left her for good and ran straight back to Bacall. They didn't wait long. On May 10th, 1945, Bogart and Methal were finally divorced, and just 11 days later, Bogart and Bacall, in a small ceremony on a friend's farm in Ohio, got married. Many thought it wouldn't last. After all, Bogart had already had three marriages under his belt, and she was 20 to his 45. Well, Bacall was determined to prove them wrong, and she would, but not only with a few bumps along the way. She invented the name. As Bogart's wife, Bacall immediately thrust into the upper echelons of the Hollywood society and in invertedly coined a phrase that would make the history books. Frank Sinatra's famous circle of friends, the Rat Pack, actually began as Humphrey Bogart's drinking buddies. Bogart adopted the name when Bacall, in a failed attempt to scold the pick pickled crew, called them a darn rat pack. Frank Sinatra was deemed the pack leader, Bacall, den mother, and Bogart was director of public relations. The twist? Sinatra hated the name and hoped it would fall out of use, but no such luck. It turned things around. The mood on the set of To Have and To Have Not had been fraught to the very least. On the set of the next movie, The Big Sleep, it was like night and day. Hawks, Bacall, and Bogart had all put aside their differences and were determined to make a film that would completely blow their collaboration out of the water. According to Bacall, they were having such a good time that studio boss Jack Warner sent them a memo that read, Word has reached me that you are having fun on the set. This must stop. Whatever they did, it worked. The Big Sleep was a smash hit and remains one of the most critically lauded examples of film noir to this day. To the chagrin of Eddie Mueller, <laughs> he had reservations. But Colin Bogart had a winning formula, formula that stuck with it, completing a total of four pictures together. However, just because Bogart worked with her didn't mean that he wanted a career woman. He was old-fashioned. 
there was also a darker reason for his apprehension. Each of his three failed marriages had been with actresses, and he, he was convinced that the two career-driven women couldn't make romance work. One way around this, of course, was to work together. During the first few years of their marriage, Bacall only appeared with Bogart, but she didn't drop out of sight altogether. She knew she was doing what she was doing. Howard Hawks had sold his share of Bacall's contract to Warner Brothers. After the big sleep at the time, Bacall was more interested in her husband than her fledgling career. And unless the script really picked her interest, she turned it down. Many began to whisper that she was difficult or too picky. In 1945, the Hollywood Women's Press Club gave her the runner-up award for least cooperative actress. Well, she'd make them eat their words. They had their differences. You know those really annoying couples who only seem to fight over the most trivial slash adorable differences, but Colin Bogart were one of those duos. He liked staying home, but she preferred to mix it up with their extensive group of famous friends. Their main point of contention. He loved sailing and she was prone to seasickness. Gee, what? how will they ever get over their differences? They pushed her. Or punished her. Bacall had grown the golden touch, and the films that she had did dying to appear in her critically acclaimed. But while Warner Brothers had given her her start, they weren't meant to last long. In her six years in the studio, they gave Bacall six different suspensions, each one given for refusing roles. Finally, after a long dispute, the studio released Bacall from her contract in 1951. Luckily, she had clout to jump ship to Fox Studios for one a one-year contract. They had better things to do. McCall wasn't the only one getting in trouble with Warner Brothers. They also targeted Bogart in what Variety, Variety Magazine dubbed Mutiny on the Santana. McCall and Bogart waited out their suspension from Warner Brothers on the ocean. Both actors had refused to do their studio-mandated roles in the film called Stallion Road. They brushed her off. They were the toast of the town in Los Angeles, and McCall was immediately selected with scripts. But there was a dark consequence to being at, attached to one of Hollywood's biggest stars. Few directors took Bacall seriously and said she was only saw her as Miss Bogart. However, that wasn't the only reason that Bacall wasn't getting a lot of work. She wanted a family. Despite having three marriages under his belt, Bogart had never had any children. But to Bacall, they were an absolutely necessity. When she didn't immediately get pregnant, Bogart began taking hormone shots to hurry the process but they had an unexpected side effect, the star rapidly losing his hair. And by the time he had showed up to make his next film, he was completely bald. Luckily, it wasn't all for nothing, and Bacall who became pregnant with her child. Well, not steroids, but she got what she wanted. In 1949, Bacall gave birth to her first child with Bogart. The happy couple decided to name him Stephen Humphrey Bogart after his father's character in To Have and To Have Not the film that had brought them together. Soon after, little Leslie Bogart came along. Bacall finally had her happy family, but sadly, nothing good can last forever. She made a difficult choice. She was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, but there was one thing that Bacall's life that she struggled to keep hidden. Bacall personally identified as Jewish her whole life, but unfortunately she had to downplay her religion to succeed in Hollywood. Even her husband, Humphrey Bogart, convinced her to baptize her two children as Christians for the sake of making life easier for them and less than tolerant, to put it lightly, American public. She shifted roles. If Jack Warner thought 
Bacall would flop after leaving his studio. He had another thing coming. Bacall's first film after having kids was How to Marry a Millionaire with stars set at Casimir Monroe and Betty Grable. Bacall had once been the nervous newcomer on set, but now she was a seasoned pro, and she and Grable were generous and patient with Monroe while making the film. It paid off, and the film was a smash hit. He made it his way in the final cut. There was even a sweet personal touch in How to Marry a Millionaire. At one point, Bacall's character says, I've always liked older men. Look at the old fellow. What's his name in the African Queen? Absolutely crazy about him. She was, of course, referring to her real-life husband, Bogart. Pretty cute, right? Her ego was underdeveloped. Just because Bogart or Bacall had an A-list marriage in a hit movie, she didn't let success get to her head. In the early 50s, the owners of Grauman's Chinese Theater extended to her the coveted invitation to have her hands and feet marked in the cement in front of her iconic build, the iconic building. But to everyone's surprise, she refused. She said that she didn't think of herself as a major star. Well, she probably was the only one. He got sick. With Bacall set to star in a string of films at Fox Studios, Bogart had been made a quick exit from Warner Brothers, preferring instead to start his own company. Like so many of his colleagues at the time, in 1955, he was planning his next big project when he began to experience throat pain and difficulty eating. Bacall pressed him to go to the doctor, and then he finally gave in. The prognosis was dire, and Bogart had uh, exoph- esophag- uh, cancer of the esophagus. It was a horrible time. With tensions high at home, acting became something of a release valve for Bacall. During Bogart's illness, she made the critically acclaimed film Designing Women. At the same time, doctors performed surgery to remove Bogart's esophagus, two lymph nodes, and a rib. He went such dramatic procedure, it wasn't enough, and he began chemotherapy. Another surgery followed in November, and then things took a turn for the worse. Things were dark. After multiple surgeries and months of chemo, Bogart could barely walk and down the stairs at his home anymore. About one year after his diagnosis, Bacall and Bogart's close friends, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, came to visit. They said their final goodbyes, and soon after, Bacall and Bogart went to bed together for the very last time. After a, a fitful sleep, Bogart fell into a coma. She was all alone. The very next day, the inev- inve- inevitable happened. Bogart passed away on the age of uh, 57. Disease had ravaged his body that he only weighed 80 pounds. And Bacall was devastated, but her nightmare was just beginning. She spent a year caring for him and hoping that he'd recover. Now she was a widow alone with two children at the age of 32 and without the only support system she'd ever known. He swooped in. For Bacall, it seemed like the world had stopped, but outside everything kept spinning, leaving her in a daze. In the state of invulnerability, someone saw an opportunity and leapt in for none other than Bogart's old friend, Frank Sinatra. He stepped in, inviting her to dinners and parties filled with her old group of friends. Bacall afraid to stop for a second and ponder her loss, reluctantly accepted. She fell from. Over time, this close friendship turned into something more. Lauren Bacall later revealed that she was only, she even thought she would, knew she was going through the motions, that she couldn't deny the chemistry between herself and Frank Sinatra. They dated for a few months before breaking things off. But more on that later, Sinatra proves to not be much more than a rebound, and after that, there was other things on the horizon for Bacall. She rebounded. 
After losing Bogart, Bacall had left Hollywood to return to her hometown of New York City, where she bought an apartment in the infamous Dakota building. It was there that she met actor Jason Robards, who was appearing on the Broadway at the same time, and who was awaiting a divorce from his second wife. Soon after they began seeing each other, they got engaged, and it was all coming together. But not all of the puzzle pieces fit. He had problems. Soon after Bacall met Robards, he revealed that he had a disturbing dark side. First, he ran his car over an officer's vehicle just a few blocks from Bacall's apartment after a night of drinking, for which he got a DUI. Then two weeks later, he threw a punch at a paparazzo outside of the Dakota. Bacall had been used to a little drinking. After all, she and Bogart were rarely found without a glass of bourbon in hand. But this time, she was over her head. Her time was the charm. Their engagement was a whirlwind. But it took three tries for Lauren McCall to legally wed her second husband, Jason Robards, in 1961. The Austrian government refused to give them a marriage license for their planned nuptials in Vienna. Shockingly, they were also turned down by Las Vegas. In the end, the couple drove down to the way of Ensenada, Mexico, to finally tie the knot a full month after they had originally planned. Why they had were in such a hurry... Well, Bacall was pregnant. She gave birth to her son, Sam Robards, just a few months after their hurried nuptials. Despite her misgivings about her husband's drinking, she was ecstatic to once again be surrounded by family. She was in her element on stage in New York and slowly plotted a return to film, but she couldn't ignore the, her problems forever. So this is just like un, unknown things, and I'm going to stop there because it's, it's long and it's tedious, and many of you have to go to sleep. Um... Here we go. She nearly made it. Just a month before her 90th birthday, Bacall suffered a stroke and passed on her longtime Manhattan home, the Dakota. Bacall had a mysterious figure throughout her life, but in her final years, she had started to spill the secrets that had never come out before, and many were absolutely jaw-dropping. Yeah. When Lauren Bacall spurned down, uh, Howard Hawks, the director who discovered her on the set of her first film, he was furious and even madder when he discovered that she had been having an affair with Bogart. Years later, when asked about the love triangle, his answer was so brutal and it's impossible to forget. How Hawks said Bogey fell in love with the character she played, so she had been playing the rest of her life. Ooh, that's harsh. Mm. Yeah, we'll stop there. <laughs> I'm sorry. It got tedious. It got tedious. So that's the Dr. Zeus film podcast. Um, there's a really great moment at the end of Key Largo where she opens that window and then and then it's the end of the film. And um But we're gonna end tonight with that very famous line. And don't everyone whistle at once. It's even better when you help. Uh, sure you won't change your mind about this? Uh-huh. This belongs to me inside of my lips. I don't see any difference. Oh, I do. Okay. You know you don't have to act with me, Steve. You don't have to say anything, and you don't have to do anything. Not a thing. Oh, maybe just whistle. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. 